Please listen carefully. Welcome to Christians in the Public Square with your hosts Cole Bennett and Scott Self. Welcome to this episode of Christians in the Public Square where we are happy to talk about all kinds of things regarding our faith and the state. Scott, why don't you start by rehearsing our our three tenets that we operate by? Right. Uh, so uh, first, sacred cows make great barbecue. Mm-hmm. We will scoff at orthodoxy whenever we please. Okay. Um, second, let your flag fly proudly. Stand up for what you believe and argue for it vigorously. And third... Bros before politicos. That's right. And we, we embrace those tightly as we march This is the through. most important one. That's right. We are very honored today to have Dr. Paul Fabrizio, a professor of political science from McMurray University, just across town. We're pleased to have him. Uh, he did his work at Emory University and the University of Southern California. Correct. Back in the day. That's back right. Back in the day professor of political science, and this is an exciting episode because since Scott and I ever started talking about this issue of how our faith and the state overlap, issues of constitutionality have always come up. And so we we wanted to have someone who is a constitutional academic, and that's why... That's a burden you're putting on me. (laughs) Well, it's certainly... I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a lawyer, so... (laughs) But it is certainly better than Scott... Or I can do. I tell you that right now. Um, I think Scott and I, anytime we have talked about the Constitution, have just ground to a halt because we don't know. Uh, Scott, how did you put it? The hermeneutics for discussing the yeah, Constitution? Yeah, it's just, and I don't even know if that works in the legal context. It's something we use from biblical studies is this idea. I mean, what about in literary circles? Do you use that term? Yes. Well, what I mean by hermeneutics are just kind of the approach to interpretation, or the kinds of uh, the kinds of possible interpretation that are available. Yeah. 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 Go ahead. All right. So, let me let me do by way of introduction to this topic. Let me just talk for a second, Scott. Don't interrupt me. I promise. All right. I will. Maybe not. <laughs> so. Many times, Paul, when I am talking to someone uh, about government-related items, and it's often because word gets out that I call myself a classical liberal or libertarian, and people come up and say, okay, I want to talk to you about this. Okay. And it could be something like, um, well, what do you think of the National Endowment of the Arts or the National Endowment of Humanities Mm -hmm. or Corporation for Public Broadcasting? Mm -hmm. Surely, Cole Bennett, surely you believe in Sesame Street. You know, I, I get conversations like that, and I will usually say, um, well, I think that is an inappropriate expenditure of money. The government, I don't think, has the right to spend that money. And the person will say, well, I certainly am glad that there are so few of you in the United States because I am glad to live in a country where my elected representatives can get together and decide – that it is an appropriate expenditure of money to have the Corporation for Public Broadcasting or National Endowment of the Arts or whatever else. And I will then say, well, actually, I believe that is an unconstitutional expense, to which they will reply, based on what? And so I always go then to the Ninth and or Tenth Amendment uh, because, uh, to me, the purpose of the Constitution 
and the founding documents of the country were to expressly state and limit the government's power. In other words, the default setting, in my view, for Americans was liberty and property ownership, and the only ways that they uh, the only ways that they felt government could limit that were ways that they expressed in these documents. And if they weren't expressed in the documents, then the government could not impede on one's liberty in that way. That's how I've always viewed the Constitution in general. And then we get to those amendments, the 9th and 10th, that's, and I'm specifically quoting the 10th, although I think the 9th is quite related, that say, if we haven't said it in these documents then the government can't do it. And anything that's left over, we're going to give to the states and the people. That is a very specific way to introduce this topic, I realize, but I mm -hmm. kind of wanted to get right to it. And so do you have any thoughts to share about that? Well, I think you've done a very good job of articulating a certain position. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Scott's already laughing. Okay. Yeah, because I've been biting my tongue. I know. You keep biting. And... You're not incorrect in any sort of way. Is that the full story? And my guess is that Scott has a different interpretation. <laughs> and my guess is that at the end of his presentation of that, I will say, okay, that's very good. And again, that's part of the story, but it's not the full story. Do you want me to do that? Yeah, that please, okay. please. Well, that was an invitation. So, yeah, so um, uh, I think I think where Cole has uh, mistaken is that he believes that the Constitution is its purpose is to uh, promote a set of virtues or values like liberty. Mm -hmm. And I am of the belief that the Constitution is really a document to govern the distribution of power, not so much to ensure that certain things do or don't happen. In other words, that the Constitution is set to, to a country to say these are the means by which um, the Article One branch will check and hold in balance Article Two, and this is the way that Article Three branch will check and hold into one and two accountable so that there is a, uh, a system. And I think part of the reason for that argument is the document itself gives room for means by which it can be edited or amended. Um, it, up to and including, I think, I think the, the best example of this is prohibition, right? Where you have prohibition, it turns out it's not working, and we, all, by the Constitution, established prohibition, and then by the Constitution, took it away, right? Because we found out it wasn't what we wanted to do. So the document itself is not telling us you can or can't have prohibition. It's telling us if you decide to have prohibition, this is how the document would be revised. And if you decide that's not working, this is how you would revise it again. So it does not guarantee the right to bear arms per se. It guarantees a process by which that right could be taken away if we decided we wanted to do that. That's an interesting perspective. <laughs> uh oh. <laughs> <laughs> and again, I'll, I'll make the same comment that I made to Cole. This is one way to interpret mm. what took place. And I think the Constitution, really, another way to look at it is that it's both perspectives. Mm. There were both things going on. 
And that means that in the end, I think it's a document at war with itself. And that's a horrible thing to say for our founding government. But there are elements of liberty in the Constitution. Congress shall make no law. Mm. And as you said, the Ninth and Tenth Amendments, which give power to the people, give power to the states. But then you got to remember, why was the document founded? I mean, the Articles of Confederation failed. The framers said, we need a new government. And that government that they crafted really wanted power, whereas the Articles of Confederation didn't have power. Mm. So what they did is they crafted a powerful central government, but within limits. And they gave people power, but within limits. Yeah. And then they said, go at it, go fight. And that's what we've been doing for 230 years. <laughs> yeah, I like, I like your expression, it's a document in a war with itself. I, as I have come to understand it in my adult life, have appreciated that it was written with that in mind, that it would be a document that always has the checks and balances of, of human nature, which is to accrue power, versus the, a system that is set to minimize power in that central government. Mm-hmm. Now, I, now, Scott, I'm sure you're thinking that's the way that you are – that's the way a libertarian would read it. But I, no, no, I really I think – and I, I had said something to you earlier about this, Paul, in an email. But I've, I've heard people say, this country is about the Declaration of Independence, and the Constitution was written to – to um, execute the Declaration of Independence, mm-hmm. which is an interesting way to think about it. And I think that supports a way of considering power a small thing for government to barely hold on to while individuals have the most power for, over, over their lives, not over others' lives, but over their own lives and destinies and property. You were smiling a moment ago, so... <laughs> Because you had emailed me about this idea of the Declaration of Independence. And in a sense, the Declaration of Independence, the first part of it is like a founding thing where Thomas Jefferson says we have these inalienable rights. But then it goes on. How many people have read the whole Declaration right. of Independence? Right. And there's all these complaints, some of them very, very petty against <laughs> the king. But specific to the king. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's like, really, are we basing a government on this, and then you think about it and you go, wait a second, we have the Declaration of Independence, what did we do after that? How were we governed during the Revolutionary War? The Continental Congress, Mm -hmm. that didn't work very well. Mm -hmm. We went to number two, the Articles of Confederation, that didn't work very well. The Constitution was our third strike, and we did that one. Did we do it well? See, we had to fight yeah. a bloody, if you give my language, we had to fight a bloody hellish war right. in the Civil War right. to make the Constitution work. I would argue, in one way of looking at it, is that our government really was inherently unstable. We didn't know what we were doing. We had some ideas, and they crafted a system that really, in the end, exacerbated debate that led to us killing each other. Wow. And then only after that did we say, okay, we can't go there again. So and so we backed away, giving some power to the federal government through the 14th Amendment. Right. 
abolishing a couple things through the 13th Amendment, for example. And then we've been on a glide path since then until today. Right, <laughs> right. You know, is today a particularly partisan time? Well— uh, you know? No, I think that's I think it's entirely fair. And so one of my one of the questions I had for you is I know that um, Plessy preferred the Tenth Amendment over the Fourteenth. I'm generalizing mm-hmm. significantly yeah, here, but Plessy, okay. right? Uh, and that Brown mm-hmm. conversely in reversing uh, Plessy, Brown versus Board of Education is focused more on 14th Amendment than the 10th Amendment. So what I'm hearing from you is kind of the, that, the, the, that the amendments are kind of the, our way of working out the Constitution, that maybe states' rights presents certain challenges um, that, we are, that we never really are able to come to terms with until we, have to, until we go through the conflict of the Civil War. Yeah, and I think that's a very, very good. Sure, constitutional scholar. No, I'm not. That smart was, guy. That I'm was very just good. Just a smart Alec. No, guy. I, I think that, would, that that's a really good way to look at it. Um, giving states rights created a host of problems, mm. just like giving people rights creates a host of problems. Yeah, but sure. is there a better way? And I think the framers thought we need to give rights, we need to balance them with the powers of the national government. And I think if you read the Constitution line by line, what you discover is the balance of powers really towards the national government. And over the course of our history, the national government is just taking more and more away from the states, which may be a good thing in terms of mitigating conflict. But they're also taken from the people. The liberty and the liberty. self-determination. And yeah. is that necessarily a good thing? Right. But then you think about the license that some people will take. You know, I've got a First Amendment right to say this. Right. Well, is that necessarily a good thing? So, so you know, you're, you're what's make, the right thing? I don't no, know. No, you've, you've presented, a, I think, uh, an important idea, which is the Constitution as a dialogic rather than mm-hmm. as uh, right, as something that— is maybe governing. I guess. I guess where I'm. Uh, what I'm saying is, uh, I'm imagining that if if I were to say, we, you know, we just need somebody to call balls and strikes, that that <laughs> might that might come off as either naive or uh, or at least rhetorical, right? Yes. <laughs> you sound like a justice, chief justice of the Supreme Court, who said exactly that. The job of the court is to call the balls and strikes. Right. Is that in fact the job? Of the court, does he really think that's what? Does he really is? think that? Does is that what he's doing? Yeah. And one of the things you have to look at when you think about the Constitution, you think about modern day, is what is best for the Constitution, and is there a conflict between that and what is best for the country at a given time? Mm. And is there a conflict between that and what is best for the country twenty years, thirty years in the future? And the reality is we don't know, and we're working this out. With fear and trembling. With fear and trembling. <laughs> yes, but yeah, uh, let me respond to that. Please. Because I, I don't believe it is the right of Scott to determine that the times are so um, torrential and tormented that the Constitution no longer applies uh, to a given situation today. I don't think I think that the writers of the Constitution 
foresaw there would be debates. Mm-hmm. So when there are debates, let's be clear that you you can do whatever you want as long as you don't harm another person with harm construed minimally. You can't steal someone else's property. Other than that, you work it out. And we're not going to try to tell you and anticipate everything that's going to happen in our new nation with people trying to work things out. Um, you're going to have to do it, and these are the minimal rules. And if it gets ugly, well, that's human nature, but we're not going to get involved. The government's job is not to make sure people are not ugly to one another. It's to make sure that you can't harm someone with harm construed nearly or take their property. So I'm fascinated by the idea that the Civil War was what you said a moment ago. I think you were saying... We didn't know how much we believed in this document until it was put to an unbelievably extreme test. And that was where it happened. And we had to decide what, how much we agreed with the principles. Am I getting close to what you Yeah, I, th- I think that's, that's a good way to put it. We did not know whether we believed or, more importantly, accepted mm-hmm. right. what the Constitution was saying until basically we fought it out. And about 40% of the people in the South came out on the losing mm-hmm. side. Mm-hmm. Right. And 600,000 people were killed. Mm-hmm. And that's quite a cost to mm-hmm. bear to yeah. prove a point. Yes. No, Darn. but I, 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 no, I love the thought you've just expressed. I, I remember the last time I was in Washington, D.C., I was at the Lincoln Monument. And there's, you know, there's mm-hmm. the Gettysburg, but then on the other side, there's that second inaugural. And it's just so powerful, this, uh, this idea that our our purpose has been tested. Yes. Right? So it's not merely we've got to find a way to get along again. It's that we have been tested at our core as a nation. Um, yes. And, and you think about that civil war, and this goes back to what Cole said earlier. The northern troops, by winning, seized, and this is a horrible thing to say, if, in fact, slaves or property, as the Southerners believed. They seized their property. They stole that wealth mm-hmm. from the Southerners. I mean, they're, they're human beings, but it was their wealth that was stolen. And so what that shows is a belief in a very, very powerful government. And, I mean, there, there's they came and they used military force. And took away they property. Used extra constitutional means to suppress people's wealth that had been in their families in some cases for generations. And this is a horrible thing to say about slaves, but that's how, in fact, the Southerners believed it. Right. And so what that says is that the framer, I'm mean, not the framers, but Abraham Lincoln, because he was the principal one, did he really believe in the Constitution? Okay. Right. I mean, I, you presented a picture of a coal of a constitution that seems sort of benign, and yet that's not what took place during the Civil War. Well, I would say, and I've uh, a couple things come to mind. It's it's hard to go back and and try to think of what people might have thought back then. But a classical liberal or libertarian looks back and says, it is inappropriate, and and unconstitutional to own another human being. You can call it property, you can call it wealth, but it's not. It violates the very principles 
of liberty as a, a Trump virtue. But the Constitution right. didn't say that. That's right. That's right. And so, so I would argue you're making an unconstitutional argument well, there. Well, strictly speaking, it is unconstitutional, but it is not. Uh, it's unconstitutional back then, but it is not anti-liberty back then. So I am very willing to say that the people who wrote the Constitution got some things wrong that they later uh, amended out. Okay. Including one that was in our day today was glaring, which is ownership of human beings. And it, and Scott and I have talked on this program before about how the Friends, the Society of mm-hmm. Friends, the Quakers, from day one were saying that's wrong. You that mm-hmm. is not. It's not only a sin. It's not. It's not freedom. Right. So I think. It, so in that way, it was extra constitutional, um, especially the original drafts, and. Number the second thought I had was, people don't like to say, don't like it when I say that the principal cause of the Civil War was about states' rights, mm-hmm. and I know that it was that slavery was the single most important part of that. Mm-hmm. But it, I think it really was about can the state point to the national government and say. We disagree with what you're saying we can do as regards owning these humans. Mm-hmm. We're going to do it anyway. And the national government saying, you can't own a human like that. So so let me say this, and I'm, I'm coming as a Yankee, so forgive me when I say this. Colorado? That's not really well, Yankee. Well, my family are Yankees. Okay. okay. Right. But uh, <laughs> the South lost. Yes. Right? So the conversation about if if that is the argument, that the war was about states' rights. States' rights lost the war, and there are consequences for having uh, lost the war. To the victor go the spoils. In other words, that if that's if that was tested, they failed in the test, and states' rights does not mean what was um, what was asserted that it means. Correct. Okay. So if Texas so, cannot say people in our state are going to own people. No, 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 no. If you're saying it was about states' rights and not about slavery. Yes, but not states' rights in toto. It was about that one item. I see what you're saying. It was one item, but they were using as a warrant states' rights, as a major premise. This is why I asked the question about Plessy and and eventually about Brown. Because in in, in the case of Plessy, uh, Plessy v. Ferguson, tell, tell me if I'm right, Paul, in Plessy v. Ferguson, uh, they found in favor of... Um, the state, the state of mm-hmm. Louisiana, mm-hmm. to to make a law supporting segregation. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And they said that the state has state rights. Yes. Yeah. Um, and But what happened in uh, some, I don't remember how many years, was it 60 years later that you've got Brown v. Board of Education, right. where that's reversed... And now the government says, no, we got this thing called the 14th Amendment, right? Mm -hmm. And that supersedes states' rights. Now, there's a nuance. I think you could play the nuance here, but there's a nuance. And the nuance is um, that's whenever the states decide to take away liberty, that the federal government has the right to preserve liberties uh, and preserve uh, equal protection under the law for all people. That's different than the federal government saying, we're going to impose um, uh, some other rule that's not really about liberty, 
right? So I think you could, I think you could make that argument, but nonetheless, since Brown v. Board of Education, we've had a, a, a doctrine in constitutional interpretation that 14th supersedes 10th. That's an interesting way to put it. Um, and again, I would argue that depends on the case. The Supreme Court deals with individual cases. Mm -hmm. Very seldom do they make overarching sure. statements that the 14th Amendment is more important than sure. the 10th. Yeah. What you see when you look at the body of recent cases is an emphasis on the 14th Amendment when it's there's been a balancing situation over the 10th. More recently, it's been decided on the 14th. But the, the membership of the court is changing. Yeah. And so one of the questions is, is that court going to say, okay, we went too far in the direction of the 14th. Let's balance it back towards the 10th. Because Brown, so Brown v. Board of Education was actually Thurgood Marshall's court, right? No, very different. No, it was Earl Warren's court. Earl Warren's? Okay. Yeah, Thurgood Marshall was one of the plaintiffs in the case. I didn't know that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So um, oh. that was in 1954. He wasn't oh. put on the okay. Supreme Court until years later. I learned something today. So you've learned that since today. You've known that <laughs> since the days. This, I'm this days old. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so it was the Warren Court. Yeah, but, yeah, was, but, 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 but I hear what you're saying. This comes in kind of the the age of civil rights, and maybe we're in a new age yeah. in terms of uh, the the way the country thinks about um, yeah, and, and, and the court and history doesn't stay still. Yeah, and so I got a big kick going back to the original idea that Cole you sent me. We're going to talk about the Ninth Amendment, and I had lunch with a, a lawyer friend of mine, and he said. Ninth Amendment? Does anybody talk about the Ninth Amendment? <laughs> and I had to pull out my constitution for him to, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Right. And I would argue that the nuance that you're speaking about is everything. The, the, the nuance saying, hey, states can do what states want to do as long as it doesn't interfere with constitutional uh, with inalienable rights that, that we have gotten, not from the government, but for being human beings. So the nuance that you're mentioning, Scott, is not a bit of the fulcrum on which I believe that. It is everything. So a state cannot say, turns out we are going to violate liberty this, this particular way. Um, In other words, you could, the, the, the state couldn't – Texas couldn't decide we're Baptist – and right. we have a state church in Texas that's right. that's of the, right. uh, Baptists, and uh, in that case, you would you would agree that the Fourteenth Amendment should override that. Well, that the First Amendment should First override Amendment. that. Well, yeah, sure. But but the Fourth Amendment doesn't. Fourteenth Amendment does not mitigate that merely because it comes after the Tenth. You were saying a moment ago that the, you feel the Fourteenth Amendment. No, I I think what I, I think my argument was. The South lost. The, those who believed in states' rights lost. But they did not lose. The, I know that's Machiavellian. They didn't lose the entire they Constitution. Lost. Right. You're making a really good point. The South lost, but the Constitution still exists. The Tenth Amendment still exists. It is still an important part yeah. of constitutional law. I mean, it's important as you think about oh, a whole a host of point. things. So the, we, what a perfect that. opportunity to say, no more Tenth Amendment. We revoke the Tenth Amendment, and they didn't do that. Exactly. Okay, I can hear that. They lost I can hear that, that interpretation of it. Absolutely. I can hear that. Yeah, okay. Totally. I, no, I, 
Okay. I think you may have changed my mind. I can't believe it. Ooh. Thanks for coming. Ooh. This is uh, this is over. No, I'm really glad. Great show. Let's let's move it to the faith realm for a minute. Yeah, you know, uh, Paul. We um, so uh, whenever we're talking about the next topic for a podcast, mm-hmm. you know, I think for both of us, we we constantly ask, okay, now, but what does that have to do with Christians in the public square? Mm-hmm. So, Cole, what does this have to do with Christians in the public square? This. I often say this to prov- when I'm asked to speak into a class. I will lead with this, which which provokes students to say, "Wait a minute!" And that is, in my mind, it's very easy to divorce myself as an American citizen and myself as a Christian to see those as two separate spheres. And the reason it's so easy, and I don't think it's as easy for any other political orientation than the libertarian one, is simple. I think a libertarian state mm-hmm. most allows a Christian to exercise his or her Christianity. Mm-hmm. If the number one goal of a state is liberty and leave people alone except in the marketplace of persuasion without coercion, that's where I can most be a Christian. So I'm happy to vote for a, a president who says, I'm going to legalize drugs and prostitution, and I'm going to legalize gambling, and all the things that I object to as a Christian, I'm happy to elect a person who does that rather than a person who says, elect me because I'm a Christian, and I'm going to shut down gambling and prostitution and adultery, and because that's a slope you'll never recover from. I'd rather... All things be legal, and then Christians be the persuaders to win people to the kingdom. Do you ever get the question asked of you, are you a libertarian first or a Christian first, based on what you just said? I don't. But I I tell people I am very clearly a Christian first. Mm Mm-hmm. And so when I am plopped down in a country and asked to vote for a leader, I want to vote for a leader that most allows me to be a Christian. Even though it also allows... Everything else. Everything else. That's right. Because you're comfortable in that context. I am. With the idea of freedom, including the freedom to do horrible things, including the freedom to be a disbeliever. That's right. And doing horrible things as long as it doesn't harm people with harm narrowly construed. That's right. So a country where people can cheat and lie and be horrible, that's, that's human beings. And uh, I, don't, I don't wish to legislate the things that I feel Christians should be doing. So, so if I feel cheated against, is that something I can go to the courts for relief, or that's just tough? Then it's just tough cookies. It depends on the the details of that. If you were, um, well, cheated, that sounds like something done with words. No, uh, I believed I believed that an investor was going to uh, to deal with my investment appropriately. Yeah, because he lied to you. Yeah, yeah. I think that the no, I would not want to legislate that out. I would want you to carefully shop for an investor. Oh, so even the remedy of the courts is not available to me. The remedy of courts is available to you if someone harms you or takes your property with harm construed narrowly. So if someone hits you or uh, burgles you, right, that's different from someone advertising to you in too slick a way or in a wrong way, in a someone who lies to you. Fraud. Fraud, Yeah. 
Not many people agree with me, Paul. Let me just say oh. that. Yes, yes. Uh, libertarians. He's in a lonely up. place. I, I heard a statistic the other day that in the whole United States, there's only 12,000 libertarians. <laughs> I don't know if that's true, but that sure is a lonely place to be if that is. Well, what you're describing is, I hate to say it, what I grew up with. I, I grew up in Orange County, California. The newspaper there, the Orange County Register, was the leading libertarian paper that you are describing what they proclaimed every day in their editorial Is page. that right? Yeah. And so there is, you can still see elements of it when you look at politics, this libertarian strain in the Republican Party. And a lot of it used to be based in Southern California, Orange County. I did not know that. So. Uh, one of the things that I see as kind of a, a relationship between uh, faith and the conversations in the state is that in both cases, there is a kind of interpretation going on. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, I, I've been, um, as someone who's, you know, really concerned about um, healthy biblical interpretation, I, uh, I've seen a lot of instances where I feel like someone takes Scripture and uses that to employ a, a purpose of their own. And I do worry, uh, I have the same concern whether that's happening in terms of the Constitution, right? That it's become manipulated uh, for, the, for the purposes of consolidating power rather than supporting the distribution of power that I think the Constitution m might, at least by my interpretation, might might be trying to uh, to govern. And... I think the Constitution, as written, is so open to interpretation. Just take the meaning of the Ninth Amendment. And there was a fight between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists mm -hmm. about what it meant. And Alexander Hamilton thought that it didn't really mean that the states had this exclusive powers. That was the Tenth Amendment. He thought it allowed for the national government to come in and take power from the states. He actually because, argued for it, didn't he? <laughs> yeah, because, because the states were reserved. They had some reserved powers, but there was a lot of, of openings there for the national government to come in. And James Madison had a different perspective on it, saying, wait, hey, this is about states and people and their powers. Huh. And, and so... Even as they wrote it, they became aware of the disputes that were going to come up about wow. it. Do you know the first time that the Ninth Amendment really was quoted by the Supreme Court? No. Uh -uh. Are you ready for this? Griswold versus Connecticut about birth control. Wow. Can I read it really quickly? It's a very yes. short amendment. Yeah. Here is the Ninth Amendment in its totality. The enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. Mm -hmm. So, we have certain rights. We're not listing them all. People have other rights. What are those rights? The fact that we're not enumerating them doesn't mean that they don't have them. Right, but did they tell us what they were? No. No, they didn't give us a clue. So, for example, we're all engaged in education. Is there a right to education mm. in the U.S. Constitution? No. Well, no. it's not enumerated. It's not enumerated, and the Supreme Court specifically rejected that in a case involving the San Antonio School District. And they said, no, it's not in the federal government. It's not the federal constitution. States can have it in their own. Interesting. But not in the federal government. So, privacy. 
is what decided the birth control case in Griswold, and then, of course, it became most famous in Roe versus Wade. Is privacy included in those words that you just read, Cole? No. Okay. The court disagreed. Oh, wait a minute. The enum- Well, it's not, it's not enumerated, and it, it's not there explicitly. Is it there implicitly? Well, that's that, that's that's see, the, yeah. So so you know they they gave us this document, and then they sort of dumped it on us and said, "Good luck, we're out of here." <laughs> and so it implies that the states can then say, "In this state, that's a right." Yes. Okay. okay. Yeah. So states under the Tenth Amendment, really under the Tenth Amendment, they take on certain rights. Yeah, but 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 uh, but you know what I'm going to say. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. If a state enumerates a right that then causes me to be harmed materially, mm-hmm. then the state can't have that right. That's, that's the first place I'm going to go to try to test. So if the state of Texas, which it does, says mm-hmm. that every child has the right to state-sponsored education without having to pay a retail price for it, which I believe it's how it's worded, something mm-hmm. like that, the state of Texas says that is a right that we are declaring, and Cole Bennett's going to pay for it. Mm-hmm. I want to argue about that. And how would you argue that? Yeah, how would I? I mean, because I would, a lot of people would say, well, if the state takes that right, I my remedy is the national government, the national constitution, and I'm looking for an opening there. I'm not sure where it is. Right. And so are, are you assuming you have rights that you don't actually have. <laughs> Apparently that's what that's what the courts have decided. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm looking uh, to see the wording of the Tenth Amendment so that it might help okay. me out. Because this is exactly where we go when we talk about it. The powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution nor prohibited by it to the states are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. So what powers do you think are not delegated? (laughs) The powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution. Um, So the powers are specific to the Constitution, such as to raise enough taxes to uh, maintain a national defense, Mm -hmm. raise enough money to uh, through taxes to fund the executive branch and the judicial branch. In other words, the court systems and the the national police, in effect, okay? And some others that are in the opening text of the Constitution, which I don't have at my fingertips. Well, I, I would turn to Article One, Section 8 of the Constitution. That's why you're here. Where there are a list of 18 powers. Those 18, yes. And thank you. It just seems that those eight, that list of 18 is pretty broad. Yeah. Commerce. Yeah, (laughs) to regulate commerce with foreign nations and among the several states. Interstate commerce. You got it. Uh, That strikes me as holy mackerel. The federal government can do all sorts of things. That's right. And you look at how that has evolved over time, especially during the Great Depression and on to the present. And you see the federal government involved in almost everything related to business. Which is why I think the more libertarians you have on the Supreme Court who say, if we're going to interpret what regulate interstate commerce means, we need to do it very narrowly to impede liberty the least. 
because they're taking into account the reason the yeah. Constitution was ever written. That's why I keep I, I wrinkle my forehead because that impede liberty. You're at, you're you're assuming that the only person, the only body that impedes liberty, uh, is the federal government. No, if you impede my liberty, you can go to jail. What if the market impedes your liberty? The market is Ooh. not a is not a human being. Who I'm not saying it's a human being. I'm saying it's a force. And if that force is impeding my liberty, hand. I want somebody to have to be empowered to uh, to mitigate that. Here's my answer: the market can only impede your liberty metaphorically and not construing the word impede narrowly. That is what my answer is. It's quite a stretch for you to claim that a non-human being or or a business a set of business transactions impede your liberty unless you're doing so metaphorically. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. I don't agree. I know you don't agree. I was waiting for you to say. <laughs> yeah, but I don't agree with it. No, I no, I think that there are um there are powers that impede liberty that go beyond the and I think you could make the argument well the constitution is only concerned about um, distributing power of the federal government fine that's a different argument than um, than that the congress is not empowered to protect individuals from the power of the market okay <laughs> there was dead silence there for a second yeah so I have a question Paul yes um, I, I want to go back to the first amendment Okay, sure. And particularly when we're talking about Christians in the public yes, school. Yes, yes. Um, it's a great amendment. It is. <laughs> I think yeah. it's been interpreted consistently in one way. And that one way is um, that we have an unabridged right to speak in the public square. I think that makes sense. That we have an unabridged right to influence the government. I'm, I, I would like to talk about it a little bit. I would like to talk about that too, Scott. I uh, I just I just wonder whether we in the church tend to interpret that as license for our um, uh, our faith to be manifest in all aspects of not just the public square and not just discourse, but in terms of policy. Mm-hmm. But that the government doesn't have a right to infringe upon ours. It's a like a one directional membrane. Yeah, that strikes me as the way most churches interpret. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and, and and you know today that seems to be the interpretation that is held dominant by the administration and recent appointees to the Supreme Court. Yeah, 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 yeah. So talk to us about that. How how do you feel about it? Is that the way? <laughs> is that a proper interpretation? Oh, <laughs> you can tell uh, well, us both sides if you want. Yeah, first of all, who am I to tell you what the proper interpretation is? See, see, this, this is the thing. The, um, the, the Constitution gives us all freedom of speech, so my proper interpretation is as right as your proper inter- sure interpretation sure as Cole's. So, but is it the correct one? The answer right. is no. Yeah, there is no correct no one. So, as a consequence, you can have an evolving of things. Um, Okay, maybe I'll ask a different question. Is it oh. problematic? The one-way membrane? <laughs> I, I, I like that, that one-way membrane. I think that's a great uh, way to say it. 
I think everything is problematic. Hmm. Okay, I can I mean, hear that. I, 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 mean, I can embrace that. Yeah, I mean, the reality is if you look at anything that we have done in this country, especially regarding the First Amendment, there's consequences that we did not think about. Mm. And how far do we want to push them? Where do we want to draw the lines in giving people religious freedom? And my terminology is faulty, and I'm thinking about the libertarian in the room, and he should jump all over me, and it's, <laughs> we all have these rights, and the government is there to protect those rights. We have them because they're God-given rights, mm. per the framers of the Constitution, per the Declaration of Independence. So the question really is, where do we draw lines? And that's, that's where the court has really struggled, and it's bounced against where people are. I like the idea that we need to be reasonable. Hmm. And, you know, what is a reasonable standard? And the court actually uses this sometimes. Mm -hmm. Is this discrimination against religion, as an example, is it reasonable? Is this regulation about religion? Is it reasonable? I really, really like that. Um, but again, we all know people in our faith groups mm -hmm. who say, I'm sorry, we're talking about God. God is not reasonable. God is beyond reason. So how dare you limit my freedom mm -hmm. by talking about mm -hmm. reasonable? Mm -hmm. And that's an attitude that people have. And what do you do with that? And then, of course, and I've heard this from people I know and love, what in the world is religion even doing in the public square at all? How dare you try to bring that in? There is no place for that under the Constitution. And they like to throw out how many times is God mentioned in yeah. the Constitution. Mm -hmm. yeah. And the answer is zero. Mm -hmm. So how's that for a non-answer? Oh, it's, But it's to provide brilliant. a context. For yeah, yeah. No, I listen, uh, if you want to say it's complicated, uh, I'll, I'll agree. I think it is. I, I think the thing that I'm um, – that this is a place you and I agree and actually, we've we've talked about this on previous episodes. Is we're a little bit suspicious whether, um, specifically Christianity in our time, whether Christianity has um, exerted undue influence, not in persuasion. We can do all the pers I, my understanding of First Amendment is we get to persuade, however we. However, we choose to like within I, limits. Within limits, right? I can't Reasonable again? Yeah, you you might, but but you can't scare people in terms of causing terror. Sure, you can't sure. threaten people. Yeah, but that that is a very different thing than in, than trying to impose a set of values, right? Uh, or a set of policies that are inter that are interpretations of um, a religious code. Yeah, I. Yes, we do share that. I do not share your alarm. And and here's something that Scott and I have talked okay. about before about this. Um, there are people in this country who would probably like to make drinking alcohol against the law. Yes. There are, there are people in this country who would like to make adultery against the law. As, or, as both these used to be at various that's times. That's right. That's right. And many other things that are part of a religious code but not constitutional – and so I, what I hear you saying, Scott, is that there are, those are extreme examples that would never work today, but, but there are 
people who are trying to petition their lawmakers to have laws on the books that originate and are beholden to religious codes, but they don't seem to want the government to come then and put laws on them um, on them that are outside their religious codes, though they have access to that mechanism for themselves. I, I'll agree, but I, th- I think the reason that my hair does light on fire is I think that it is a, a, a clear and present danger because it is a clear and present danger in the moment. For example, for members of the LGBTQ community, where there are folks in churches saying, we got to make sure that marriage stays between one woman and one man. Right. That is a clear and present danger if you're a member of the LGBTQ community and you wish to be married to somebody of your own ge- uh, uh, gender. Right. So that becomes an, uh, it becomes an issue. It may not be an issue for us, but it is an issue for our neighbors in clear and present, clear and present ways. Right. Agreed. And so the libertarian response to that is pretty easy. And I know that it sounds like a little too easy, but uh, a libertarian lawmaker should say. What are we in the business of marriage in the first place? We're not in the business of marriage in the first place. So I'm not interested in your petition. And Scott and I have taught Scott gets up. Scott's getting upset. (laughs) Scott gets upset when we have uh, when we talk about people who. Not people who go visit their congressperson to make a – but when people pay large sums of money to get lobbyists to go. Mm-hmm. And my answer to that has always been if you have lobbyists who are convincing your lawmaker to make a bad law that's unconstitutional, your problem is not with the lobbyists. It's with your lawmaker who mm-hmm. – because petitioning your government is exactly how our government works. You're just, you just have a lousy lawmaker whom you should fire at the next election. Mm-hmm. Totally agree. So the First Amendment to me does not is not problematized in the way that you see it, except through bad lawmakers. The fact that it's only a one way street for religious people uh, that's they should ne- the, a good lawmaker should not listen to religious codes that are unconstitutional to be put into law in the first place. I hope this hasn't been a rabbit warren we've gone down because I didn't mean for it to be. Can a legislature? write a law that restricts uh, jobs to certain people on the basis of religion. You can only be a priest if you've gone to seminary? No, I'm thinking more you're an OBGYN, but you have to perform abortions. Oh, I see. And if you have a moral objection to it and the state comes in and says, I'm sorry, either you perform abortions or you don't. What would a libertarian response be to that? Absolutely. Uh, a libertarian response would be you can have OBGYNs who choose to do that and OBNs who choose not to and let the person go to the OBGYN she chooses. So the court—I mean, the, the Congress can't write a law that mandate that all OBGYNs have abortion training and have the ability to do that. And not, my, not in a government that I would want, correct. Okay. Mm-hmm. How I, yeah. I would have things to say about abortion in, to begin with as a libertarian president but or libertarian government, but that's for another podcast. Right. You, know, you are clearly um, pro-life. Right. The, well, I'm, the, not pro, I'm not necessarily pro-life. I'm anti-abortion rights. Right. And that, there's a difference to me between those two things. Right. And, and, and you've made the argument uh, in previous episodes, you've made the argument that that is not just a manifestation of your Christianity, but of your libertarianism. It is not at all a manifest. The, the law that I would want on the books is not about being a Christian. It's about being 
a libertarian who rejects harm to others. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, but that was actually tested, wasn't it, in the Hobby Lobby uh, yes. context in the American uh, the the ACA. Um, the, and the Masterpiece uh, Bakery as well. Right, yeah. right. Very much. So there are these, you know, I, I think uh, while you might you might pretend like that these are extreme examples with like OBGYNs having to perform abortions, that's exactly what Hobby Lobby was saying when they said you are forcing us to provide health care, which means that there's contraception and mm-hmm. we object on contraception. Uh, that's a place where I, this is saying I'm a Christian, I'm an all in Christian. And I want to say to my brothers and sisters, sit down and be quiet <laughs> because we're, I think too often Christians assume that, um, the state, that the state has, a is beholden to our own, that the, that the law uh, should change because of our faith. You can't take down the ACA because of your faith. You can you can ask for an exception. I'm cool with the exception question. Mm-hmm. But as a means by which to take down the ACA, that's the inappropriate side. What if you're asking for the exemption doesn't work? Then do you abide by a law that you think is unjust? Yes. Well, I think the early church did. I think Paul made his argument, mm-hmm. and then he got killed for it. <laughs> I think Paul goes to the state. I think mm-hmm. Paul makes his argument, but when he loses, he loses. Mm-hmm. Conversely, when Jesus is describing our interaction in the public square, he says, "If you know, if your enemy demands, if if the enemy asks you to go with him a mile, you go with him two miles." Mm-hmm. We don't have. I know the Constitution is preserving my right to uh, my liberty in terms of religion. But I don't think Jesus has given, um, Jesus has given me the liberties that the constitution gives me. Jesus gives me a different set of liberties. Okay. A different set of obligations. Okay. So as, as a baker, you might not bake a cake that celebrates a gay wedding, but you're willing to just not bake it and go to jail rather than go to court and try to argue that you should have an exception. No, that's that's the based on what you said. I think that's a really yes. good question. We're, we're trying to push this. You're ready to go to jail. Yeah. Okay. Well, I would. So, but so, a person, a person a pers- should. A Christian who, yeah. Okay. So, so the proper response is really civil disobedience rather than public advocacy or lit- litigation. Okay. With, with well, rights language. To a certain degree, I actually am arguing that even civil disobedience. I think we have to come back to the Sermon on the Mount. I think we have to come back and ask: Is that is Jesus suggesting to us that civil disobedience is always appropriate either? Mm-hmm. I mean, what a perfect opportunity when a soldier asks for you to go one mile for you to step back and say, I'm sorry, those who live by the sword shall die by the sword. I belong to the way. I don't do that kind of thing. But that's not what Jesus tells us to do. Jesus tells us walk two miles with the guy. I think there's a qualitative difference between walking an extra mile and murdering I, I know an you infant. think there is, but but – I I want to explore that quality that Jesus is calling us That's to fair. for the for the for the people of faith instead of assuming that our righteous indignation is always righteous. Yeah. I I hear that and you and I have had great talks with other examples where 
claiming rights is not the way forward, but walking an extra mile is. I think I think you're onto something there. Yeah, I I just would I like I would like to suggest that Christians look at the Bill of Rights and say, that's nice for my neighbor. I don't have freedom of speech. As a member of the way, I don't have freedom of speech. I can't just say whatever I want to because I belong to Jesus. And I can't just, I, I, it's not that I just can't yell fire in a crowded theater. I have to be careful to, that all of my speech is, is, uh, is salt and light, it's, it, that, it, that it's graceful, that it's kind. I have to do that all the time. And it doesn't matter that the state tells me I don't have to or that I, that I can say whatever I want. I can't say whatever I want. And isn't it great? that the framers of the Constitution created a country where you can do that, <laughs> I would say, as a libertarian. No, I have the same job if I lived in... Uh, this, I've said this on, this on the podcast. I have the same job in North Korea. The, the, no, but the state protects your rights to be, uh, to be beholden to a more narrow bill of rights from Jesus, the uh, United States. I guess. Be- because it preserves your right to do so. That's been my main argument since we started. I suppose that there have been states in the past that demand that I use speech in, in caustic ways, but most of them haven't. Nazi Germany. Yeah, I was thinking about Nazi Germany. You had to agree to certain propositions. and Yeah, being a Christian yeah. would cost you right. your freedom, whatever, yeah. however you don't want to find it. Yeah. I wow. no, I, I, I just want to say that I, I guess my, my overarching argument here is that I think when we, as Christians, when we look at the specifically, since you're talking about the Tenth Amendment, I'm kind of using that as a bookend for the Bill of Rights. Mm-hmm. I think Christians might uh, benefit from looking that, at that and asking whether that's nice for my neighbor or whether that really is my God-given right. Is it really my God-given right to bear arms? I understand the argument that um, God is mentioned in the Declaration of Independence, but is it really my God-given right? I'm not saying it's not. I'm asking, can we ask the question? Yeah. And you have the freedom to ask the question. What you're saying is the limitation on us is not from the government. It's from our own yeah, that's a great relationship with Jesus. That's a great way to put it, Paul. I, I... I think Jesus does place limits on us, whether the government does or not, in terms of whether um, how we engage in the public square, how we engage with our neighbor, how we determine what is moral or immoral, um, that, that the gospel has some implications for the decisions I make that are in no way superseded by liberties that the government decided I have. Aren't you, if you push your to a logical conclusion, aren't you setting up an alternative system of government that challenges our government? Yes. And is that what you want to do? I don't I mean, know. I, I, I don't the, want to, but Jesus already did. Mm. But yes. Isn't that, from a government perspective, more dangerous than a libertarian? Yes. It's subversive. Okay, here we go. I mean, I, I don't disagree with you at all. No, I would, I, I, I would actually. I would it, place it, a it, limit on one on one way, which is that I'm. That doesn't mean I get to coerce my neighbor to also follow the way. Right. 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 Okay. But, but yes. in terms of your own life, in terms of who you respond to, it's got to be Jesus, and Jesus is your guide. 
The government is, in essence, off to the side. It's just a nuisance to put up with. It's for your neighbor. Who cares about them? Your relationship, your walk is with Jesus. And if that leads you to conflict, well, then you'll follow Jesus' precepts and in dealing with those consequences, accepting those consequences, whatever it is. And I just happen to live in a place where it's so convenient that I don't have to confront that very often. And and you work at a school where that's okay. I mean, the question is, is this an easy thing to say here? It it is very easy to say. if we were in another country, would it be a whole nother story? Or even if we were at Texas Tech University, would you? you It would be, yeah. No, I think that there are places where, uh, I, I think that is a, I think you can criticize my point of view and say it's so easy to say that when you have a bill of rights. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And goes back to my original answer to your first question, Cole. Um, are you a Christian first? Right. Or are you an American mm-hmm. first? And you're clearly saying, well, I'm a Christian first. That's where I'm going to be first. So and I, and that's, that, I would argue, is a really radical thing. How many people would actually take that position mm-hmm. i mean a lot of people i think say mm-hmm. it but mm-hmm. do we act that way do we vote that way? right i mean you were talking about the twelve thousand people who are true libertarians how many people are really radical christians in this concept right right wow Paul, <sighs> i have loved this conversation more than you know i i did because here's the thing is um i'm starting to i'm starting to see some way th- some layers to where you're coming from that I did not see before. Okay. I got to be honest with you. I couldn't understand what you were hint, what you kept hitting at when you would talk about the constitution. And I think in some ways, part of what Paul has helped us do here is understand not just different approaches to interpreting, but the question of whether the document is in, is in and of itself a, conf, a conflicting dialogic or whether it is um, something that is clearly clearly interpretable, you know what I mean? I do. I bet I know right where you are on that. Well, it's okay, <laughs> but now I can, I can understand my brother better, and that's important to me. Yeah, I appreciate that. Paul, you've been very helpful. Thank you for coming. Yes. This has been delightful. Oh, I'm Thank glad. You. I'm glad. I really enjoyed it. We very well may have Paul back. I would love it. <laughs> <laughs>